I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and with me, of course, is Steve. G'day, guys. And we're here today with just ourselves. You've got just Steve and I today. Just us, lucky you. <laughs> or not. And we just want to talk to you a little bit about keeping native animals as pets. Um, it's something that has been a topic of discussion a lot on social media. It's something that people always ask about. I mean, ever since a country practice had a, a wombat on the show, I think people have always wanted to have a pet wombat or keep an eagle um, or have a penguin living in their bathroom. Is this a good idea? Keep a penguin in your bathroom. Have you, have, have you not ever wanted <laughs> no. to? Really? No. Oh. But um, okay. Not sure. <laughs> it's not where I thought it was going to start. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm intrigued by that. Yeah. People have been keeping budgies and bearded dragons and green tree frogs, and nobody seems to care. Mm. A lot of a lot of reptiles, I think, is the main thing that we've been keeping in captivity, isn't it? Over the years. Pythons lend themselves Pythons, well to captivity. Yeah. Bearded dragons, we mentioned. Um, people have goannas, venomous snakes, crocodiles. Other countries, big iguanas, humongous snakes, which you'd sort of say, are they suitable as pets? But they seem to do well. I always think if, if they're, like reptile-wise, if they're breeding well um, and you know they're fed on a good diet, I mean, they, they must be doing well in captivity. Why do, not? Do they occasionally get out and eat people? I, I think that they potentially could. <laughs> not not that often, but uh, in the <laughs> wild, they, they certainly have in the wild. They certainly killed people in the past. There was someone here in South Australia that got killed by an Australian um, scrub python. That When people always come up to me and they say, my cousin's Arnie has a snake, and you know where this is going straight up. Yeah, yep. sizing her up. Yeah. Rubbish. Absolute rubbish. Absolute rubbish. And yet everybody listening knows someone whose cousin's auntie had this happen to them. Yeah, and woke up with it actually swallowing them. And they went to the vet, and mm. the vet told them that, well, this snake is sizing mm. you up. It's sizing you up to eat you. Yeah. No. Yeah, it's interesting. So all that's fine, but then when you talk about native mammals as pets, people are diametrically opposed to it, or people are totally in favour of it, and there's no middle ground. I mean... I used to be opposed to it. I used to think that, you know, they're not the best type of pets, some of these native mammals. Things like hopping mice are probably okay, but should people have a betong? Should people have a quoll? I used to think, no, maybe they shouldn't, you know. Um, but then working with these animals uh, for a long time, I've seen a lot of carers and keepers, rather, that look after these animals quite well, and I, and I can see that there is benefit to it too. So it's not, not perfect, nothing's perfect, but when you see animals disappearing from the wild, I mean, everybody knows Australia's extinction rate Know, pretty bad mammal extinction i think is the worst in the world um so maybe let's say if people did keep a pet thylacine back in the day or a two latchy wallaby or a, oh, did I say, what did i say a pet thylacine back in the day back in the day when they were around um, yeah. arguably still around listen to our podcast with new waters from the they thylacine may well Awareness still group. be around if people did keep them as pets so it's one of those they would still be one around of those things isn't it yeah yeah so maybe it's not a bad thing. I mean, and there's a lot of people right now saying that we should be allowed to keep betongs and potteroos and quolls and squirrel gliders and rock wallabies and wombats. And um, In your line of business that you do with Animals Anonymous, do you get a lot of feedback on that kind of thing? What's people's main concerns on keeping a native mammal as a pet? 
One of the things you hear a lot is people say, that's a wild animal. That shouldn't be in captivity. But what they don't realise is that it's not a wild animal. A wild mm. animal is an animal that's living out of the wild. This animal, as they say, is in captivity. Yeah. Um, but I see their point. Like, it hasn't had thousands of years of domestication or hundreds of or, or some of these animals haven't had any domestication. So... So, yeah, they do have a lot of the wild traits. It's not going to be what we would normally think of as a pet. So you might not be able to house train it. You may not even want it living inside your house. So really, you're being a zookeeper with some kind of pseudo wild animal. But, I mean, you've seen what we've done with uh, Rufus Betongs. Yeah, and we've been breeding the tamest <clears throat> with the tamest um, for over a decade. And now we have some really domesticated Rufus Betongs that you can have sitting in your house, sitting on your lounge chair, uh, going to classrooms, going to events. And at night time, they're different. They do become betongs. They're nocturnal. So they hop around and do betong things. They can still bite. Um, I, I mean, you could make the argument that, yeah, your pet dog or your pet cat can still bite, but probably less likely to perhaps because yep. it's had that many years of domestication. So the concept of conservation through domestication is creating more pets so it's another way of conserving these animals. And that comes with a heap of pros and cons. So it's, it's something that should be talked about. It's not perfect, but I think it's something that we should always look into. How, how does that conserve these animals? Just because people get empathy towards them? Yeah, I think so. I mean, a lot of people um, don't get to see these animals in the wild. A lot of them are extinct throughout most of their range, like betongs are extinct in Victoria. They're extinct in South Australia. We used to have three species here. And even the states that do have them, you've got to be pretty lucky to find one. Having them lets people know they exist, so it probably adds value to you know maintaining habitat. So there's the educational aspect of it. And I guess if somebody has a native animal, they're learning about its needs and its requirements and, uh, again, its habitat. So um, it, it's, it's good they influence their kids, influence their friends on the native animals rather than if they had a dog or a rabbit. They're um, not, so... Mm. And so there are pros. I guess some of the cons are that there will be people that don't look after their animal, and that's going to happen with... With everything. Everything. Reptiles, dogs, cats. Yeah. That, that's the whole problem. You, you do speak to a lot of people, and, and you know I thought about it, um, especially when I come and see your amazingly tame animals. You sort of think, oh, I could, I could keep those. And, but, yeah, some people just don't keep them as well as others, so they can get a bit ill-treated. I'm actually all for keeping them as pets. I think it would be a great thing. Just for that education, I think it would protect the wild stuff a bit more. Um, it would allow people to... Because it would always be on licence, so I think that always allows people to understand what they're getting into a bit more than just going and getting a dog or a cat. Um, but people always have to understand that a dog is probably the most domesticated animal. Cats, not so domesticated. Never probably will be. Um, but yeah, then when you get down to the level of betongs and things like that, they're going to be even less domesticated, but they can be kept as pets. I've got a friend who's got a house-trained potteroo. Um, I house-trained my female quoll. She's a tiger quoll, but she got too big and scary to have in the house, hmm. uh, like full-time. But my friend had a potteroo living in her house, and then she got a rabbit. Um, that was a rescued rabbit that was an escaped pet. She couldn't find the owner. And the rabbit was house-trained. So now the potteroo copies the rabbit. So the potteroo uses a kitty litter tray. <laughs> <laughs> that would be crazy. Yeah. 
<laughs> so the choices are we don't domesticate any of these animals and then in 100 years' time, if the extinction record continues to, you know, the trend that it's on, we lose more species or we do domesticate them and in 100 years' time we have maybe some, some a range of native animals that can be domesticated. People have told me that they worry that, you know, how people breed f- certain traits you know, so we might have quolls <clears throat> with stripes or numbats yeah. with spots and all these yeah. types of morphs appearing. Then there'll be there'll always be people that go for the the natural type or locale specific species. Yeah, I guess it's even in in like the wallabies and kangaroos that produce albinos. There'll probably be even though we know that the albinos, I don't know much about albino kangaroos and wallabies, but I imagine they are still a weaker animal than a regular wild type animal. Um, but people will still be trying to breed for those albinos. And that's always a side that you think, oh, it's, is that moral? Is that is that good, bad? Like yeah, that? yeah, I agree. And people will be trying to make a buck out of it. And, yeah. um, so, I mean, and these are the things that need to be discussed. Um, you know, so we're pretty lucky in South Australia because we can have a lot of these animals. We can have betongs, dunarts, squirrel gliders, potteroos, red kangaroos you know a lot of the wallabies all on a basic permit you know mm. so we're i mean pretty lucky in that respect so but it's still on a permit and there's still some control there and yeah it, which i think is a good thing i don't think that they should be allowed to be kept as pets if they're not controlled in some way because they're not really domesticated animals they're just something that you can keep as a different kind of pet yeah, there's a lot to know. I mean, exactly. And the diet has to be quite specific. Mm. Housing, I mean, uh, foxes and cats, as we know, that's that's why about a quarter of our mammal species are threatened in Australia, because of cats and foxes. We didn't ever have native cats in Australia, so our mammals took a massive hit and still are taking a massive hit from cats. Bloody Europeans. It's bloody... <laughs> so, so you know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult one. It, it's something that you, you know, some people want to go. Everybody should have a pet quail, full stop. And I, I see that kind of uh, gung ho mentality, and I think, yeah, no, nah, no, nah, not quite. And that's what used to turn me off it because yeah. I realised the responsibility of having some of these animals, and that's why I was against it. But I've been really lucky to meet really sensible, decent keepers that invest the money, invest the time, get to know good vets. Uh, you know, actual wildlife vets that have worked with some of these natives, which ironically vets call exotics because um, it's yeah. not a cat or a dog. So I'm calling this an it's exotic, an exotic. This Australian animal. And that's made, that's actually made me think, well, these people should. And if it increases the genetic viability of some of these animals, but what do you think about rewilding? I, I love the idea. Um, and, and we'd all love to see, I think we'd love to see more of it happening. But it's a it's a big investment because you have to clear that part of land from the predators that have probably got rid of those animals in the first place. Cats and foxes. Yeah, it's a lot of work. It's a, a lot of work, but it's great if it works and when it works. We'd be lucky that we've seen the quolls here in South Australia um, in the Flinders Ranges yep. be returned. We we used to have three species of quoll here. We had none, and now we've got the western quoll back, which is great news. Tamar wallabies on the York Peninsula um, have been successful. And I've heard that they're talking about putting quolls back on Kangaroo Island. And they've got no foxes on the island and they're trying to go cat-free. So what have they done in those areas to be able to rewild them? Operation Bounce Back. 
Mm-hmm. So it was a, just a big concerted effort with all the stakeholders and funders, like Fame was one of the funders. Yep. We had Tracy from Fame on the show the other week. And, and I believe that a lot of research too and investment, breeding up the animals. So it's a massive, massive undertaking, but it, it, it shows that that's possible. And I'd love to see that happen here in Adelaide. Have they fenced off areas? No, or? no, they haven't fenced off any areas. Because hmm. there's a couple of big parks that have been sort of fenced off, I think, and there that. Yep. Yeah. So you've got your pseudo wild environments where you have your predator predator proof fences and uh, places like arid recovery come to mind. Yeah. And they've got bilbies and betongs and stick nest rats and things that were extinct in that area. So it's a way of putting animals back in a pseudo wild environment. And what can happen is when you have these animals with no predators their numbers can go sky high mm. and they start affecting the environment that they live in. So they start grazing upon the plants that are there. So you do have to control these animals because there's no natural predation. And if you release these animals into the wild, well, they're again susceptible to cats and foxes, as particularly since they haven't... Even more so, yeah. They haven't dealt with those <coughs> sorts of predators. So Arid Recovery have a great system where they have a pre-release enclosure and there's a few cats in there. And they, <laughs> all right, we're going to your new home now. Um, and of course, these animals, some of them get killed by cats, but the ones that survive are more aware. And um, the plan is that they'll do better on the outside. Mm. So that's all steps in the right direction. Yeah, because I think there's a lot of um, a lot of permits being issued to cull cats and foxes and things in the wild aren't they to try and get it under control because at the moment it is out of control and these aren't small domesticated cats these these cats are huge yeah they're just yeah and they eat so many things oh they're massive and the, the, the deserts the outback of australia is just covered in cat prints these cats are everywhere and there's some indigenous people i was just reading about this morning in the western desert that actually hunt cats and there's a hundred dollar reward on cats uh in in that area and they teach their kids how to go out and track and, and hunt these cats, which I think is a great idea. Yeah, that's, that's what we need um, because they eat an astonishing amount. It's millions of animals per day that feral cats and foxes eat in the wild in Australia. And just kill, yeah, I mean, because yeah. cats will and, kill. Yeah, and maybe just kill, um, yeah. But it's, yeah, it's an insane problem. Yeah, it's a, it, is, it is a sad thing, but... I mean, there's a lot of positives too. So, I mean, who knows what the future holds, but I think discussions like this are important. And if anyone's considering having a native animal as a pet, do your research. There's some great books out there. One that comes to mind is Australian Mammals, Biology and Captive Management by Stephen Jackson. And that's got husbandry requirements, you know, uh, housing, stocking rates, food, things about health checks, uh, you know, where they're going to sleep, nesting boxes, all of these types of things. Uh, one of the animals that people commonly keep are sugar gliders and squirrel gliders. Yep. And I see so many people that just love them, they're cute, they want them, and within about 8 to 12 months, they no longer want them. So I, I often try to talk people out of them because, I mean, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of people that keep them and love them, but I don't know, I, I don't think they're exactly what people think they're going to be. They've got sharp claws, they wee on you. Um, you know, you can't just hang out with it. Some people keep them in their pockets during the day and call them pocket pets. Mm. People keep them in bird cages. You see a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. they do keep them in small cages sometimes. Yeah. And that's where, like, 
I, I do sit here and a big part of me says like it would be amazing to keep some of these animals as pets some of these wild animals really as pets and domesticate them um, and we could all learn a lot from that as a race as humans we do tend to abuse that with animals and why do we need to keep animals why do, what, why do you think it is that we I'll I, I tell you what I've been thinking I I could be wrong but I think we've we've somewhat lost that connection with nature now that we live in homes and we you know we can get out of the weather and we aren't surrounded by you know native bush or you know forest or whatever kind of natural habitat we used to survive in our food just arrives at the shops for us so we're not getting our hands in the dirt and i've always thought that maybe having a lizard in a tank you know where people really enjoy setting up the enclosure making it look natural you know people want the enclosures to look like where that animal comes from whether whether that's some kind of a way that people are reconnecting with the environment and I, maybe not in every case but that's something that i've often thought about because i mean if you got somebody from a thousand years ago or 500 years ago and said you know people of today keep snakes in a tank as a pet they would think you were mad mm. they wouldn't believe it they would not believe that you would invest money into having a pet snake you know, and I, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's, I mean, maybe they're just fascinating animals and people are drawn to them for different reasons too. But, you know, we no longer see them. I mean, a lot of the, this, these animals around us in our environment like we used to. Mm. So maybe having one at home in an enclosure or setting up an outdoor reptile pit or having a bird in an aviary is a way of just reconnecting with the environment. I do hear a lot of keepers that, you know, they kept while they were younger and then when they get their licence and they start exploring the world, they can go out to these natural places and they can see, you know, they go bird watching or herping or, you know, fishing, I guess, but, um, you know, getting out, even hunting, any kind of outdoor activity with nature and, um, and then no longer desire keeping animals in captivity as much. So perhaps for those people, there is that link with trying to reconnect. Me obviously coming from England, where I'd have hundreds of snakes in captivity and in cages. I'd look after them, I'd give them nice enclosures, stress-free environment, and try and look after them the best I could. It was great, I loved it. If anyone asks me why do I actually keep snakes, I'm not that sure, I don't really know why. <laughs> I, just, I, I guess just because I'm fascinated by them, um, I enjoy watching them, working them out, working out what they do, because cold-blooded stuff is a lot different to your domesticated pets that we keep now. But um, since coming to Australia, and especially this last year or two, I've been, I still love keeping them. I do still keep quite a few, but I'm probably down to the least amount of reptiles that I've ever had. Probably solely because I enjoy just getting out, walking and seeing things out in the wild and, and stuff like that, rather than actually keeping them at home. And I get the option now of seeing all of these amazing animals that I used to keep in England. I get the option now that I can just go out and see them in the bush. Um, maybe not that easy but you know it's um it's almost become part of the hobby to actually get out there and see them as well whereas in england reptile wise you've got three snakes you know and a a couple of little lizards and three frogs and three frogs (laughs) so yeah you know there was never much to get out there and go and look at you could only go around people's houses and see their collections of fantastic animals um so having that collection enriches your life Mm. uh, from a natural point of view yeah 
You have a very – I've noticed that the way you keep, it's you – know, I mean, you're an excellent keeper and I've learnt shitloads from you. And I'll you're, leave off. You're always, <laughs> you're, always help, you're always helping me with my, um, my animals here and you've got a, almost like a scientific way of looking at it. You know, you're obviously really attentive to what the animals need and obviously that's built up over a long, long, long time. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> long, long – yeah, look, I was always uh, lucky to be – shown the way of keeping reptiles from an, a real old old timer uh frank schofield in europe in in england who, who showed me a lot um amazing like such a successful breeder and it was always like early days of you know he does or he used to we used to keep these things in quite small enclosures and things and it took me years and years to work out that sometimes that's better so you you work out all these things if you put a, a snake or a little lizard into a huge great big enclosure good chance it's going to be stressed out so you you, i've spent my whole reptile life um learning about them and that's what i've dedicated it all to is just trying to learn more if something's not working then you really have to think about why it's not working and start trying to do something else i never looked at it as being any sort of scientific thing but i guess in a small way it, it sort of is i'm learning from the animal it absolutely is yeah which, which is, and that should be part of the hobby, you know, not just getting a bearded dragon, putting it in a cage, handling it every now and then, which is all great. And bearded dragons are amazing pets. They really do actually give something back, I think, sometimes. They're, they're great things. But, it, yeah, it's learning about those animals and, and go and go in the wild and see them and, and see what they do in the wild, which, again, is something that I've been able to do in the last eight years living here, to see stuff in the wild that I've learned from uh, again and take things to another level. Yeah, you've always got to learn from, from your mistakes, but thankfully I don't think we make as many mistakes now. One of the good things that the internet has brought, I guess, got a bit more knowledge out there. I think so. And we've got so many good products now too, mm. UV lights. and Yeah, yeah. which, yeah, UV lights are great. Uh, some of the powders and things that you get are great for captivity and, and do all these fantastic things. Over here is brilliant. We can get them outside certain times of the year anyway, so they can get a bit of that natural sunlight. Yeah, which, again, is another learning curve for me. Like I, every, All of my keeping in the UK had to be in cages, in warm rooms, in warm cages. To, over here, I can have outside enclosures. That's amazing. And, and stuff like that, you know. It's, a, it's, it's always a learning curve. I think we always, like, even if we get to, you know, another level of mammal keeping in captivity... Um, we've always got to remember that it's all about learning. You've got to learn all the time. If something goes wrong, you have to learn from it. I think you're right. And I, I think um, even if somebody wants to keep a ring-tailed possum as a pet, if they've got a rescued ring-tailed possum, um, you know, being a marsupial, the baby's often thrown from the pouch or the mum's been killed by a cat, so people end up with, with a joey, can't be released, of course, and they raise it, and that animal's got to be in captivity for its whole life. Now, that's not a threatened animal. But if somebody's learning how to care for that animal, they're learning about it, then that's an expertise. That's that's somebody that's getting experience and that person then may become a zookeeper Mm. or they may be someone that works with a threatened species. So they've learned on a a common animal, Mm. but that's all information that if we weren't allowed to keep those animals to begin with, um, like some other places in Australia, Mm. we we, we wouldn't have. So... Mm. You know. I think mm. a lot of the time, like in in captivity, like with with hobbyists like myself, we're we're hobbyists. We're not these scientist 
zoologist type keepers and sometimes you know there's been a lot of occasions where us hobbyists have actually successfully bred some stuff because we don't have the technology and that sciencey background that some of the zoological places do and we still work some things out ourselves as well so I think like sometimes captive management with a hobbyist can actually be a great thing like you can learn a lot from it because some some of us hobbyists really do want to make sure everything's right and really learn by any mistakes and stuff like that um yeah without that science background absolutely and we're all working towards the same goal and that's just to have Mm. healthy animals Mm. and reproducing animals is another whole nother thing at the moment, Steve, we are about to build a yellow-footed rock wallaby enclosure. We are. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> we're, we're looking around everywhere just to make sure it can't escape. Yeah. So up to now, we know that one-foot-high one fences won't work. Won't work, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't ask us how we know, um, yeah. but we hope we're getting back. Yeah. We're <laughs> <laughs> We've put food out. <laughs> so, yeah, we just spent the morning up at one of the local parks looking at behind the scenes at how they care for their rock wallabies. Yeah, Monato Zoo here in Adelaide, which is a fantastic place. Yeah, um, awesome spot. Mm. They do a lot for conservation right there too. I think all zoos do now. Yeah. But yeah, it's one of the great things with zoos now. They've changed so much. Well, I liken it to an iceberg, you know, the mm. tip of the iceberg. When you go to the zoo, you see keepers cleaning poo. You know, yeah. you understand they, they feed the animals, they keep the exhibits looking tidy. But the underneath of the iceberg is just yeah. all these projects they're involved with, with with wild uh, rewilding projects, breed for release like the Western Swamp Tortoise mm. that Monato are involved in, yeah. um, studying animal behaviour of some of their captive animals to learn towards future, again, rewilding projects. Mm. And I think worldwide, zoos have probably been the main reason why we know so much about the problem with frogs. The, uh, is it the... Citrid? Citrid, something like that, yeah. virus, yeah. It's zoos that have pumped millions into that for years, like into really trying to make that work. Is it a fungus? Is that what it, it is? It is a fungus, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah there I you say go. it is a fungus, yeah. I'm, I'm sure it is a um, I think it, I don't <laughs> know, yeah. yeah. We had Steve Walker on the podcast, the frog expert, and he did talk about that. Yeah, no, and, and of course, I mean, obviously breeding endangered animals too. I mean, we're getting rhinoceros in Australia breeding uh, because in other parts of the world they're just being poached, Yeah, um, which is tragic, you know, and we're, every day we're, we're faced with impending doom of all these animals that are being poached for ivory, it, and it's ridiculous. Do you think as a hobbyist I'll be allowed to keep a rhino? I can't see why you wouldn't, mm. yeah. Yeah, I should look into that. <laughs> so if everybody had a rhino... Again, maybe not a one-foot-high fence, but... Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, is that so bad? I mean, we've got guinea pigs, rabbits, rats, mice, you know, pigs, all these things that people keep. Cats. People keep cats. Mm. Why not add to that betongs, potteries, quolls, gliders? I mean, is that that so terrible? I, I, I think it's changing, Steve. I think people are realizing that you know there is room for it and i have to keep coming back and saying yes we agree there are there is going to be negatives there are going to be people doing the wrong thing and we just we just have education i think by um more people doing it i think more people will learn how better to do it Mm. and hopefully hopefully more people do it well and people can in in australia people can own those as pets now can't they they can 
in yeah, South Australia, we can own all of those animals. Yeah. Uh, I think New South Wales at the moment, I think they can have like hopping hopping mice mm. and maybe plains mice or something. Yeah. I think there's like two rodents they can have it. All oh, right. Um, unless you're a wildlife demonstrator. Mm. But there's um, some some people up there really trying really hard to, Push. to change that yeah. and I hope they're successful. That's the other thing too, Steve, is that we have a pretty high rate of endemism here. So our animals are extremely unique. And to lose them every time we lose something, it's bloody sad. I mean, you don't want to lose any animals, but, you know, we've been isolated for a long time. Should I give you some figures on that? I would love to hear some figures on that. <laughs> These are just <laughs> plucking from my head Just here. from memory. <laughs> 87% of mammals, 93% of reptiles, 94% of frogs, and 45% of birds. That's Our massive. Birds. Found yeah. nowhere else. Nowhere else. That is huge. Well... But we've got 1,700 species of Australian animals and plants at risk of extinction. Mm. Yeah, it's sad, isn't it? isn't it? It is sad. They need, a, they need some kind of a virus that just wipes out all cats. So, you know, yeah, if you're a young person and you're listening, develop a virus that wipes out cats. Maybe not pet cats that are kept indoors. So if they can, you know, get a vaccine that will work on people's pet cats... I think we're the same on that because we both don't actually mind cats. I don't I, mind cats. I quite like cats. Yeah. Um, don't trust them, but <laughs> I don't mind them. <laughs> don't ever lend one money. Christ. <laughs> um, the, the people that keep them as pets, all they need to learn is to try and keep them in, mm-hmm. especially at night, even mm-hmm. just at night. Just try and keep your cats in, please. Um, it's, but it's those wild cats, those humongous Wildcats that are out there that do most of the damage, although domestic cats still do. Um, yeah, they, they do a massive amount of damage. Yeah. So if we could eradicate them, foxes and cane toads. Yeah, that'd be pretty good, wouldn't it? That would be. That'd be nice. Yeah. Maybe and we rabbits. Should, should we put some thought into that? We'll see if yeah. we can do that. Just me and you. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. We'll be pause it. Pause it, Steve, and we'll um we'll work on something. We'll do it. Yeah. We'll, we'll be back in a minute. <laughs> All right. We're back. Um. No luck yet. Not nothing. We'll do it another day. Um. <laughs> yeah. And I think rabbits too. I think rabbits um have a massive impact because they eat all the all the seedlings. So they're yeah. inhibiting you know regeneration mm. of plants, and that's mm. pretty massive too. Yeah, because we need the plants. We need the plants. Then I get you talking about plants. I, I love plants, Steve. Mm. Yeah. What are the importance of plants, Adrian? Oh, I don't know if you like a little thing called oxygen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Soil stabil- uh, stabilisation. Keep the salinity down. Um, habitat. Habitat. They look pretty. You feel good when you're around a diverse amount of plants. A lot of people have plants in their garden and they'll get some Australian native plant and that's fine and that'll look good. And I've got a couple of Australian native plants in my garden. But if you plant a local native and that seed then becomes another plant, you, you end up creating a system and so rewarding for biodiversity. You can have hundreds of species in your, in your garden, just small little things. Rather than having one big shrub taking up a whole area, you can have lots of little tiny things and rocks and hollow logs and create a system and... That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> but that just brings back everything else because then the insects come back and it, it just Soil starts. microorganisms. Yeah. Yep, that's it. You've got the pollinators, the seed dispersal methods, and then you've, that's all part of your system, you know. Um, and that's what we... I mean, everybody, every man and their dog loves 
biodiversity. Very few people you meet don't want to go out into nature. Yeah. Most people miss that big tree on the corner. Most people miss where they used to go hiking. That now it's all you know parks or now it's all roads and everything it used to be um, nature. So people do miss it. Nobody likes the extinction record, but how many people really are trying to have a section of their properties or their gardens put back to biodiversity? Um, when I drive around, I don't see very many at all, mm. and I don't know why. So you know, hopefully people listening can... Well, just like uh, we had Chris Day on from Everyday Sustainable Living, and we were yeah. talking about growing your own food from home and mm. some of the benefits of that. You know, you don't have to have all the plastic packaging, the fertilisers and pesticides. You're, you're monitoring it at home. It can be organic. You pick it from your garden, and that's great. And he said start off with one square metre. Yep. And I think your wife heard that podcast and you've and got she, about... We've got yeah. one square metre at the moment yeah, yeah. and plans to make that about 12 square metres, I think, of, already. Of food production. Yep. And you can do the same thing with a local native garden. You can just have, if you've got a patch of lawn, you can just dedicate a little corner or a section and just do one square metre and put maybe six species of ground cover there and a couple of wildflowers, forbs or something, maybe even a small shrub. And to see what comes to it, see what has a look. If you've got kids, you know, get them involved and um, check it out. See if birds come to it, see if insects come to it. And if you like it, you know, extend it. Mm. It has to be done in every household. And we're taking it one step further because we're going to have it within raised garden beds for our vegetation within our blue tongue and shingleback enclosure. They're going to so. eat your strawberries. So this is our first podcast just with us two. And we are about just over three months this podcast has been on the air. Yes. We're really grateful to all the listeners. About 16 million listeners. Uh, is that right? Yeah, 16 something. 16 something. Six, we had 16 listeners. <laughs> it might listeners. just be 16. I can't remember. Yeah. Hmm. Um, but what a, what a great thing. We've had a diverse range of people. And we've got a lot more people lined up to come on. So it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Nerve-wracking at times, but fun. <laughs> <laughs> Just to conclude, let's see where this thing goes. Native animals as pets. I mean, I've been domesticating Rufus Betongs, for example, for 12 years, and I've got some super friendly animals, like I mentioned. Let's see what can happen if people keep quolls. More people get better at breeding them. They become more readily available. I mean, And that's the other factor too, Steve, is that these animals just aren't available. All good to have an enclosure to keep some of these things and to have the permit and to know how to look after it and have the time and the money to invest into it acquiring the animals isn't always easy either mm. so it is a hard thing to bite into and but a supply and demand thing would automatically happen that i guess what we've got to be careful of is that people really do realize that these aren't dogs or cats they need specialist care they won't live in your house forever um, you will need outside enclosures and things like that and supply and demand will naturally happen I couldn't agree more. And I think, too, when somebody sells you an animal, their responsibility is on them, yeah. whether it's a mouse or a frog or a quoll, to assure that you, as the buyer, have the knowledge, yep. the enclosure. I mean, it's all well and good to have the permit. I mean, we mentioned that in South Australia, a lot of these animals are on a basic permit. Hmm. So I think the seller should really be responsible for where the animal's going, too. Yeah, almost like a... RSPCA set up where they come and inspect. I think they sh rules like that should probably be put in place to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, and that'll have to be funded. People will have to pay for that. 
Um, So people won't like paying more. But if somebody really wants a particular animal, you know, it's a one-off cost early in the piece just to just to prove that you're set up for it. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's. I think that's something we will talk about again on the show, Steve. Um, Look. Yeah. Have you got anything you want to add on anything? No, I don't. I don't want people to think that we're really pro keeping animals in captivity. Um, but I do think that it will help. It it it, it absolutely can, and um, you know it's a good discussion to have. We will yep. have this discussion again, guys. If you've got any thoughts, comments, criticisms, considerations, we want to hear them. Only nice ones. Only nice criticisms. Yeah. Thanks, guys. So, yeah. Thanks for listening. <laughs>